We're part two of our sermon series during this Christmas season of Advent on suffering. I'm talking about when life hurts. Um, I, I shared in the morning service that uh, this is the time of the year when our emotions are accentuated and we feel them at a much deeper level. What I mean by that is if you love this season, their sense of joy, the joy is sort of heightened. Um, but it's also the time of the year when if you struggle with loneliness, loneliness becomes really painful. Um, just even practically, if things are bad with your family, <laughs> the time of the year when all of that is just drudged up is when? Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, it just, just intensifies and accentuates these emotions. Um, that's why I think Christmas is also an important time, though, for us to meditate and reflect on the reality of suffering, the reality of life, and, and, and what it is that Christ came to do. Um, you know, I've always felt the people that hear Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace and that's good news are people whose hearts are filled with chaos, brokenness. People who are longing for redemption and restoration of the messed up world that we live in, the people for whom that's really good news as we reflect on our people who are most intimately involved and in tune with brokenness of the world. Um, it is for those of us, I guess, that are sort of coasting through life <laughs> that this sermon is sort of an intellectual exercise. Um, but if you're any, actually, if you're a human being, um, this is an irregular, normal part of life. If you're a Christian, by the way, here's the good news and bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ promised suffering, yes? In John 16, he says, when... You face trouble. Not if, but when. And there are other passages. He promises it. Do you know that it's part of the program as a Christian? <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> it's part of the program as a Christian. Jesus said in Luke 6 and Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. It's part of the program. You're promised it. And here's the other thing. It, it, you are not promised that when we go through suffering that we will be rescued from it. There's no passage in the Bible where Jesus promises that. What he promises is I will be with you. I will be with you. As we long for the redemption and healing of all of creation. So we live in the in-between time of Christmas and Easter. Here already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. We have to ask the question. Suffering and pain. Um, <laughs> I preached in New York uh, this summer at a friend's church. And I preached on forgiveness. And afterwards, a nice man came up to me and said, How do you forgive hijackers who flew planes into the World Trade Center and killed my family? I had enough sense to look at him and say, I don't know. There are no simple answers, is there, to tragedy and suffering? Matter of fact, we come up with simple pat answers when we, and we talked about this last week, how we respond. Moralism. Moralism. Moralism is a simple sort of perspective of the worldview that says if good things, if you do enough good things, what? Good things will happen to you. If you do enough bad things, what? Bad things will happen to you. Karma, you know. Uh, I have a hard time with folks who believe in karma. And I, I'm not, I'm not you know, judging you. I'm just saying, like, if that's your perspective of the world, that do enough good things, good things happen to you, bad things. If as a Christian, how do you explain the cross? 
How do you explain the cross? How do you explain the most perfect, righteous, holy man who walked on the face of the earth and he got unjust, innocent suffering and death? Okay? So if you're a Christian and you function from that perspective that if you do enough good things that God will bless you, then when suffering and trial come, it will demolish your faith. And you're going to be like, I'm out. Um, anybody remember Jack Handy, Deep Thoughts on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> Carlton, I was going to ask you to come up and play some music in the background. I don't even remember one of these deep thoughts. You know, one, of the, one of these deep thoughts was, you know, with music playing in the background, you hear his voice go, you know, deep thoughts. When it's raining, if a little kid comes to you and says, why is it raining? I think a really cute thing is to say to him, maybe God is crying. And then if the kid says, well, why is God crying? Maybe a really cute thing is to say, probably because of something you did. I mean, good Lord. You and I laugh at that, you know. We laugh at that. But deep down, can we all be honest? Deep down inside, I believe some of that. Listen, listen. If you don't understand the gospel and how Jesus Christ obliterated this cause and effect dynamic, if you don't understand the gospel and how we don't get what we deserve, but we get what we don't deserve, when suffering comes, not only will you experience sorrow, but you're going to experience tremendous guilt underneath the sorrow. And it will crush you. It will crush you. You're either going to be angry at God or completely angry at yourself. Another thing is cynicism. Cynicism. What is cynicism? Cynicism says, there's no God. If there's a God, he's out to lunch. Things just happen. Things just happen. That's what suffering, suffering just happens in this world. But as I said last week, the reason why you and I are drawn to moralism and cynicism is because it keeps us in control. And we have this innate yearning desire in us to, to, to maintain control in a chaotic world. You go, what are you talking about? Moralistic people, how do they maintain control? This is how. I'm going to do enough good things, God, so you make sure I have good things coming. I'm going to avoid enough of the bad things, God, so I avoid tragedy. What are we doing? I'm going to control you, God. That's what religious people do. That's what you do. That's what I do. Cynic, cynicism. What is cynicism? <laughs> I'm not accountable to anybody. There's no God. What God? I do whatever the heck I want to. I maintain control. Moralism and cynicism go straight up against what the Bible says, which is what? Can you live in the mystery of a relationship with a God that you can't control? Well, I don't like that. Then you're going to struggle with Christianity. Because <laughs> Christianity says there is a God who is sovereign and you can't control him. And we don't like that, do we? And then there's minimiz- minimization, you know, minimizing, minimization. I tried to make this all rhyme like a good preacher. I couldn't come up with moralism, cynicism, minicism. No, it's a minimization, mini- mini- I don't know. Peter, is there a word for this that rhymes? Peter's my professor from Trinity and his family have been coming out. Is there, is there a third word that rhymes as a preacher? No? Minimization? Is minimization a word? Yeah? Minimalism? Anyway, we're getting off track. Well, anyway, it doesn't really matter. You guys know what I mean by minimizing. Minimizing is when Christians, what? Just simply, you know, we say, we say stuff like I said this. We throw out Romans 8, 28, for God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to purpose. And when people share some tremendous things, we just throw that out. And it's like a spiritual shut up. You know what I mean? Like, I'm really struggling. Romans 8, 28. Oh, okay. You know? We, and here's the other thing we do to minimize people's pain and suffering. We put time limits. Well, I know you lost your husband, but you know, dear, it's been six months. You need to... Or language. We sanitize language. Married couples, you know, in a married couple small group. 
we're at each other's throats. We have to put a nice little bow at the end of it, you know. But, you know, the Lord is at work in mysterious ways as iron sharpens iron. And all the Christians go, that's right. I just wish sometimes, sometimes, sometimes a Christian married couple will be like, we hate each other. We want to kill each other. And? There is no end. That's it. You know, I wish, I wish Christians just be honest about that. Why? Here's the thing. We walk around in eggshells because we feel like if we're really and brutally honest, somehow that lacks faith. Where do we get that from? Where do we get that from? We get it because we're moralistic and we somehow think that even in suffering, the way we respond, somehow God will either bless or, oh, it's ingrained in us. Well, today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Job. Look at Job. Do you guys remember guy Job? Yes? Even non-Christians know Job. That's what we're, st- st- we're going to study Job today. And I joked this morning, Job is 40 chapters. We're just going to, uh, I'm just going to preach chapter 1. Uh, if I actually decided to preach the book of Job, I think it may take us like five years through it. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I still have people asking me where, for, if I'm still preaching on the book of Acts. And for those of you that have been coming to our church, you know that we took like three years, but we stopped preaching on that like Two years ago, and people think we're still, anyway. Okay, book of Job. Here's the context, okay, before you turn to, look, listen, listen. Book of Job is three conversations, okay? There's conversations between God and Satan, which we're going to look at today primarily. And then you have 30 chapters of Job and his friends. And it is the most excruciatingly painful 30 chapters. Do you know why? Because all his friends are doing is moralizing, moralizing, moralizing. For 30 chapters, his friends are saying to Job, what'd you do wrong? What'd you do wrong? What'd you do wrong? You must have done something wrong. Because if you didn't, why would this happen? Why would this happen? 30 chapters over and over and over again. And Job, righteous man that he is, doesn't just go, shut the heck up. He listens to it, listens, and then he finally cracks at the end. And when he cracks, conversation between Satan, uh, between God and Job. And when, then finally, when they have their final conversation, I love it. God, Job goes, why? Why? Just tell me why this is happening. And God says, who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? It's a wonderful comeback, isn't it? It's a wonderful way to say, you don't know what the heck you're talking about, right? Who darkens my counsel? And God just goes, were you there when I threw the stars in the cosmos? Were you there when I gave life and breath to every living creature? Why does God respond like that? What we're going to see today, okay? Now, um, we were really honest this morning, yes? Janice, yeah, yeah, we were real. There's some of you that have been, you, what are you doing here for the second service? You want to hear this again? Um, it's a really painful sermon. I'm telling you right now, yes? In a good way? In a medicinal way? Okay. So Job chapter 1, you guys, here we go. I have a favor. Can I ask you a favor? Prayer request. Man, I didn't share this in the morning service. Um, it's been really hard for me to preach two sermons recently, like really hard. Uh, last Sunday was the first Sunday that after like the 9 o'clock service, I actually went in the back and I prayed this. I said, God, I don't know if I can preach another sermon. Um, so I'm really tired. I'm just being honest with you. I'm really tired uh, spiritually and other way. And so uh, as you're listening, if you can kind of do both listen and pray for me at the same time, that would be great. Cool? Okay. Yep. Um, and secondly, I also said that I wasn't going to shout as much, but I can't promise you, <laughs> okay? You all know me by now. Like, Peter, if you didn't shout as much, you would reserve some energy. I can't help it. Okay, Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. 
This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. Verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, upright, and a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, does Job fear you for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread through the land. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. These verses, everybody look up here. We're going to stop for now. They hit too close to home for me. Okay? Do you know why they hit close to home? Because this is exactly what's happening. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He fears me. And it literally means all wonder. What God's saying is, Job loves me. Say, Job loves, he serves me out of love. He worships me out of love. You know what Job goes? Job goes, uh, Satan goes, Satan goes, please. He don't love you. He loves the things he gets from you. He doesn't love you. He, He loves the stuff you give him. You think, God, you think he's in it for you? You think he is worshiping you for you? Following you for you? Committed to you for you? You got to be kidding yourself. Take away all the things that he has. Take away all the blessings that he has. And he is going to be out of here. Watch. And God amazingly says what? God amazingly says, okay, go ahead. Take away the things. Now, you guys... Give Satan his due. And this is why it's close to home for me. And I don't know if you could. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you were in a relationship with somebody, whether it be a friendship or, frankly, like you're, you're, you're higher up in your company or work or whatever you do, and then there's somebody else who was really wanting to get to know you, pursuing you, and then they find out that you're not going to do for them what you want them to do, they want you to do, and then they're gone? And you realize, wait, you didn't love me? You didn't care? For you, you realize you're being networked. Women? I hear from this woman when I counsel some people. They're like, Pastor Peter, I was dating this guy, and things were going great. And then next thing I knew, he was gone. I said, what happened? It's like, well, I wouldn't sleep with him. And I realized he wasn't in this for me. He was in it for it. What was it? What he wanted from me. Now, have you ever been on the receiving end of one of these things? How do you feel? You feel exploited, don't you? You feel totally manipulated. It's the most disgusting feeling in the world. Can I ask you a question? This is where it gets personal. Have you ever done it to somebody else? Do you know what happens when we do that to people? Well, I'll share with you what happens to me. My heart gets a little hardened. My heart gets more cynical. My heart gets a little less human, if you will, when I use people like that in my selfish, self-centered ways. Matter of fact, I become more like Satan. Here's the ultimate question. Do we ever do that to God? Do we ever, this is going to be strong language, exploit God? Do we ever manipulate God? Can I ask you a flat-out question? How many of us sometimes function from the perspective of God, I'm in this as long as you do for me what I need you to do? 
God, I'm in this as long as my life is working out the way I want it to. God, I'm willing to follow you as <laughs> I go. I'm willing to follow you as long as the things that are happening in my life, things like avoidance of suffering, avoidance of pain, avoidance of the things that I don't need. As long as these things are happening, I'm following you, I'm with you, I'm committed to you. I am about this relationship. But as soon as something goes wrong, I'm out of here. Have you ever done that to God? Have I ever done that to God? Now here's the thing. When Satan says to you and me, he looks at us and he goes, you don't, wait. God, I love you, I worship you, I'm all about you. I think Satan goes up there and going, you don't love God. Give me a break. You don't love God for himself. You don't worship God for himself. You don't serve God for himself. You worship him, love him, serve him for what he does for you. Because look at the way you respond as soon as those things are taken away. Now here's the thing. If God loves you and me, and if when we do that to God and to others, we dehumanize ourselves, we depersonalize ourselves, we become an exploiter, manipulator, we use people. And if we, if we do that and we, we, we want to be a person of integrity, we want to be a person of compassion, we want to be a person that is truly great, here's the thing. In order for us to not be an exploiter, a manipulator, not be a person who is self-centered, self-absorbed, using God and using other people, the only way, the only way that God would have us be people of greatness is we have to get to a place where, where we are worshiping God for himself and himself alone, where we are loving people for themselves and themselves alone. And I'm telling you today that sometimes the only way that we come to that place is through suffering. You know what suffering is? For many of us, suffering is when our idols die. Suffering is when that thing that we have counted on, that thing that we look to for life, that thing that we look to for significance, you know, the real God in our lives? Let's be honest. The real idol in our lives, the real thing that we live for, that we breathe for, the real thing in our lives, when that thing is being cut off, when that thing is being taken away, when that thing is being removed, that's what suffering is. Now, here's the thing. How do we mostly respond when that happens? I'll tell you how I respond. I go, God, God, why are you doing this? This isn't fair. This isn't fair. Why are you doing this? My life feels meaningless. My life feels meaningless. And sometimes, honestly, I hear God going, of course your life feels meaningless. If the thing that you built your entire life on to find meaning is gone, you're going to feel meaningless. <sighs> Just talking to a young lady. I shared this morning who's a therapist and a counselor, and she went to see a therapist and a counselor because she is literally getting to a point where she's having a crisis of faith. And she's writing this email to me, and she's saying, you know, Pastor Peter, it didn't help at all because the whole time I was kind of being fake and coy and not really being honest and sharing and things that I wanted her to hear, blah, blah, blah. And she said, when I walked out, it finally dawned on me that the thing that I'm feeling, the way I'm feeling is because I was dating this guy, and he just never reached out again. And two days after that, it put me in a tailspin. I've been in this tailspin. Can I ask you something? In your time of suffering and pain, what are you most afraid of right now, that, afraid of losing? What are you most scared of losing? What are you saying about that thing? God, if that were to happen, if you were to take that away, God, if that were to be removed, if that is brought into my life, I don't know if I could live. What are you saying that about? Because at the root of that is not just your suffering, but at the root of that might be the real thing that you worship, the real thing that you live for. The real thing you're saying, this is what I'm about. What is it? Can you be honest? What is it that you're saying, 
I want to be in a relationship with you. But this is the thing that really matters. Because then something happens to that thing. And we see our responses. Do you love God for himself? Or do we use God and miss out on a relationship with our heavenly father? Suffering has a way of stripping away all resources away so that in the end, all that we have left is the only thing that really matters. Can I just be honest with you guys? I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't think I've been able to learn this truth that God is enough for me. Everybody say that together. Ready? God is enough for me. I can never learn that by being taught a sermon. The only way I've learned that is through experience. The only way that I've learned that truth is through experience. Do you love God for himself and himself alone? Do you love other people for who they are and in themselves alone? Or are you and I becoming exploiters, manipulators, hardened, cynical? Was Satan right about Job? Was Job just in it for himself? Yes and no. At the end of chapter 1, Job has lost all of his things, but he continues to worship God. And we're going to talk about that. Job is literally saying, God, these things are not important. These things, you can take them away. God, you are the thing that is important for me. And so if you want to use football analogy at halftime, it's Job 1 and Satan 0. But then we realize as the game continues, as you go further into the book of Job, that Job is not as holy or righteous as we think. There's some self-centeredness in Job. There's some self-centered sort of self-absorption in Job because he doesn't love God just for the, he, he doesn't love God just for the things, but he doesn't yet love God for himself. And here's the thing. The only way for God to make Job into a man of greatness, the only way for God to make Job into a man of integrity, of compassion, into a man who loves God for himself and himself alone is Job has to go through this and never find out why. Job never finds out why. At the end, Job goes, tell me why. And I wish God said, okay, grab a chair. Let me tell you why. All right? Let's check this out. In 2012, December 9th, there's going to be hundreds of people at a church called New Community. And they're going to open their Bibles and they're going to talk about you. They're going to be like, whoa, Job, what an amazing man. What a great man. Job, your life is going to be an inspiration for millions and millions of people. Christians and not, they're going to hear about you. Think you are an incredible model and example of courage, humility, and faith. Not only that, Job, but you're going to lose all these things, but you're going to get double the portion, double back everything you have. Now, does this sound interesting to you? Would you like that? God doesn't do that. God just goes, who do you think you are? Who darkens my counsel? Well, you didn't want, why does God do that? I'll tell you why. People come up to me and they go all the time, Peter, if I just knew why, if I just knew why I'm going through this, if I just knew why I'm going through this, of what's going to happen five years from now, of what's going to happen ten years from now, if I just knew why, what's going to happen those times, then I think I can worship God and go through it. I'll tell you why God doesn't do that. Do you know why? Because here's you and me. If you and I knew what would happen five years from now, ten years from now, we would be going through it for that and not for God. We wouldn't go through it. Trusting God, loving God for himself, we would go through it for what I get five years from now? Yeah. 
What I get 10 years from now? Yeah, come on, can we be honest? Am I the only one that thinks like this? Church, am I the only one that thinks like this? No. You and I would go immediately there. God, I'm suffering. But if I knew why, the reason why he doesn't is because if you did, you wouldn't be about God. But what you're going to get? So God says, because I love you, and I want to turn you into a man of greatness, I'm going to put you through the ringer and not tell you why. You guys, you guys, you guys. If I just knew why, explanations, explanation is a cheap substitute for trust. Do you trust him to make you and me into men and women of greatness? Do you trust him that he has worked beyond our comprehension to turn us into people of compassion, people who truly love? Do you trust him that you, listen, the thing is, if I asked you today, would you want to be loved for yourself and yourself alone? You would all say what? Yes. If you say, do you want to be in a relationship, a marriage, where people love you just for you, not what you do for them, not the things? We would all say yes. Here's the thing. Wouldn't we want to be turning into those kinds of people who would do that for others? And the only way that that will happen, I'm telling you right now, is that God puts us through the mirror and we don't know why. Someone once said this. Someone once said, if you don't go to the grave confused, then you don't go to the grave trusting. If you don't go to the grave confused, if there are not some unanswered things by the time you're done, you don't go trusting. The sooner that you and I get out of the conjecture business, the better it is for us. I love this quote. Satan comes to God and says, they don't just love you. They love things you get from me. And God goes, no, 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 no. I want to create it into a man of greatness, a woman of greatness, people who are free lovers. C.S. Lewis, this is what he said in Screwtape Letters. He says, devils are always saying there's no such thing as love, and they know why their enemy Jesus often puts his disciples through the ringer. It's because he wants to turn them into free lovers, someone who loves Christ, loves God for himself and himself alone. Can you serve God even though you get nothing out of it? Okay, Take a step further, the gospel. <laughs> Can you serve God even though you don't just get nothing? You get bad things happening to you. Can you serve God when that's what it means to follow Jesus? You know, sometimes I hear myself say stuff like that, and I go, Peter, do you want anybody to show up at church? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I say, do you really want to be serving God, following God? Because when I read the Bible, the Bible says not only will you not get nothing out of it, but you might get bad things happening to you because you follow and love Jesus. And all of God's people said, that's hard, but that's amen. It's truth. I'm just going to be honest. You know what, for me, I said this last week, I am the most self-absorbed, arrogant, self-centered person on the face of the earth, okay? My wife agrees, so that's enough, you know, witness and testimony right there, right? I am. And I'm telling you, I can't ever change because somebody comes to me and says, you know, Peter, you're prideful. You know, you're. The only way that I've been able to change out of the self-absorption and become this free lover, T.S. Lewis talks about, is through experience. Nobody has learned their flaws because somebody told them. Come on, your mother's been telling you for 10 years. 
<laughs> Has it made a difference? Church answer? No, you can't be told. We have to be shown. We have to be shown. Same thing. Nobody ever believed that God loved them by being told. I tell you every week, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Amen. Monday morning, I don't believe he loves me. Do you know why? You can't be told. You have to be shown. 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 And life shows us. I don't know about you, but I want to love God for himself. You know what I mean? I want to be able to say from the bottom of my heart, God, you're enough for me. I do. I want to say that. I have a hard time saying it. I have a hard time saying it. I have a hard time saying that, God, you're enough for me. God, I love you for you. I worship you for you. I adore you for you. You alone, nothing else. I want to mean it. I want to live my life in accordance with it. Verse 12, let's let's keep going. The Lord said to say, very well then, everything he has in your hands is in your hands. But on Job, on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Everybody, look up here. This is hugely important for theology. Is this Hollywood? Hollywood that says Satan over here, God over here, two equal deities fighting against each other. Oh my gosh, who's going to win? Is that the picture in the Bible? Answer, no. Who's in control? Who's sovereign? God. God says to him, you can do it, but Satan, you will not touch his life. God is absolutely in control. This isn't two deities warring each other as if we're kind of helpless little, you know, beings on earth being manipulated by the gods. Please, God's going, I am absolutely in control. However, look what happens. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. If you're having a bad day this week, read Job chapter 1. Verse 18, I'm glad you could laugh at that. I'm glad you could laugh at that. Because it's pretty tragic stuff. Y'all are sick. Verse 18. (laughs) While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were fasting and feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It claps on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And if it isn't bad enough, in chapter 2, we see that Job is struck with boils all over his body and he is scratching his skin. Total utter loss of everything. Question, why does God allow that? Why does God allow this? And I'm telling you guys, no book in history, okay, Bible, non-Bible, as honestly begins to address this question of why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And there are two important truths that we need to hold on to. And I don't know if I do a very good job of explaining, so hang on there with me. Two important truths that we need to hold in tension. On one hand, notice that Satan is behind all the evil and suffering in Job's life. Very important. God is never, the Bible says, author of evil. God is never the author of evil. 
Satan comes up with the idea, and Satan, with God's permission, executes it. At no point in Job or any other time in the Bible is God desiring, intending, creating suffering and evil that goes into Job's life. Satan would love to have you and me blame God for it. And we have these conversations all the time as a pastor. People go, why would God? And we immediately go to the place, and the scripture clearly says God is not ever the author of evil and suffering in the world. And this is something that we talk about in this church a lot, and you need to listen. When God created the world, and this is the thing, this is why at Christmas I just long for his return, because when God created the world, he created a world without evil, without suffering, without death, without sin. God created a perfect world in which men and women perfectly fellowship with God, perfectly fellowship with each other, and the world worked in harmony. Shalom, shalom. Does anybody long for that? The entire world that God created was a world free of evil, suffering, disease, and death in it. But it's when you and I decided to come out from under the rule and reign of God willingly, when we chose to remove ourselves, instead of living with and ruling with God in perfect fellowship, when we chose to come out from under the rule and reign of God, the Bible says we unleashed forces of evil, suffering, and chaos like unseen. The evil and suffering in the world, if you go, where did it come from? We unleashed the forces. We willingly chose to, so here's the thing. And give me like two minutes to do a little soapbox thing, okay? Like two minutes. And I might not make sense at all. That's okay. I'm going to give it a try. When somebody goes, why would God allow evil and suffering in the world? Why does God do that? I think sometimes God turns the question and goes, I don't know. Why do you allow evil and suffering in the world to continue? You go, what are you talking about? Here's a question. Let's just get philosophical for a little bit. I'm not very good at this. I'm just going to spend two minutes and then be done with it. Let's say, let's say there was no God. We remove God from the picture because some of us want to do that. Would there still be evil and suffering in the world? Church, I need you to talk to me. Would there still be evil and suffering in the world? There would still be, take, remove God out of the picture, and there would still be tremendous amount of evil and suffering in the world. Take God out of the picture, and there are still millions and millions of people who are dying because of violence, oppression, corruption, evil, and injustice. We do at the hands of each other. There would still be. So, there's no God. So you take him out of the picture. So God can't be blamed. Then who's left responsible for the blame? But we don't want to go there. See, one of the great things about God is that you can blame him for everything. But let me ask you something. Who's to blame for the fact that there are millions of people who are going to die of HIV and AIDS? Who's to blame, stay with me, for the fact that there are millions of hungry children who will die of starvation while you and I, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to go here, we callously throw away our leftovers. Who's to blame for the fact that there are millions of people buried in the killing fields of Cambodia? Who's to blame for the fact that there are millions of orphan children in South America without a home, without parents? Who's to blame for all of these things? If you can't blame God because he's no longer in the picture, the only one left to blame is us, but we don't want to go there. So here's what we come up with next. We go, well, we did the, we made the mess, but why didn't God fix it? Okay, well, how would God go about fixing the evil and just in the world that we created at the hands of our hands? I could think of one of two ways. Number one, he could just get rid of all of us. Anybody for that one? I'm not for that one, so let's move on to the next one, okay? I'm not for God removing all of us, which would take care of this. The other, is, the other thing that God could do is God could literally remove our free will, our free will to choose. God could make us think that we're freely choosing good and, and over evil, so on and so forth, but God could be God so he could make us do all the things with the motives and intentions that he wants us to do while making us believe 
illusion that we're making the choice. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a perfect world where we don't have a choice in what we do. So God gives us a choice to create a world for ourselves, a world where we could choose to be loving, just, righteous, and generous, or we could be selfish, evil, unjust. So basically what we have is, God, look at all the evil and suffering in the world. Why don't you do something about it? What we're saying is, God, why don't you fix the mess that I made via my wrong choices without taking away from me my ability to choose wrongly? Can I give you an illustration? It's like we want God to be our pooper scooper, following behind us, clean up the mess that we made. Okay, so what is God to do? Here's an option. Maybe the world will change when we change. Maybe the world will become a better place when we become better. What do I mean? Maybe the essence of the Christian life is that God the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and our lives and he transforms us into the likeness of Christ and we choose love over hatred. We choose justice over injustice. We choose activism over apathy. We choose compassion over lack of compassion. Maybe when we change by the Spirit of God, the world will change. Maybe part of this is us owning up to the fact that we're responsible. Okay, I'm done. Well, there was a little more than two minutes, but okay. God's never the author of evil and suffering. God hates evil. He's against it. He didn't create a world in which it exists. God is never desiring, intending, creating the suffering that goes into Job's life. But on the other hand, and this is where you have to make, the other hand, yet, however, the Bible says that God is absolutely in control. What we have here is the one true God in total charge. Do you understand this? This is such amazing news. What we have here is God saying, Satan, go ahead and do the thing that you're wanting to do, but you will not. You will not lay a finger on his life. So God permits it. God allows it. And the question of, well, why does God permit it? Why does God allow it? You know what we find in the book of Acts and the book of Job and why God does? When you read the book of Job, God allows Satan. God permits Satan to do his thing. Because the result is, it actually results in the exact opposite of what Satan is trying to accomplish. It actually defeats the Satan and the purpose of Satan himself. That's the result in Job's life. What is Satan wanting to do? He wants to discredit Job. He wants to prove that Job is a fraud. He wants to prove that Job is not the man that God thinks he is. And here we are, thousands of years later, talking about him, studying him. And his life has transformed millions and millions of people. What do we learn? God, in his sovereignty, allows and permits Satan to bring evil and suffering into our lives in such a way and to the extent that it actually defeats Satan's purpose for us. It actually accomplishes the exact opposite of what Satan wants to do in our lives. Is that good news to anybody? Give me an illustration, metaphor. God gives Satan just enough rope to go hang himself. How courageous would you be if you knew that that was true about your life? How courageous, strong would you be if you believe that even the evil intentions, it's, the, it's, it's Joseph in Genesis 50 saying, what you meant for evil, God what? Meant for good. How strong would you be if you knew even the horrendous acts of injustice, suffering done to us, not anything you chose to do, but done to you, that our sovereign God says, Satan wants to accomplish this in your life. Satan wants to do that in your life. That's his intention. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring about greatness, compassion, integrity, and all the things that I desire for you to create free lovers who will transform the world. Is that good news? You guys... That's what Romans 8.28 means. Can you put that up there, please? Oh, my gosh. 
Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Everybody say all. Say it again, all. Do you believe that? In all things. In all things. Even things that we would consider tragic things. Even things that we would consider useless things. Even things that we would consider unfortunate things. Even things we would consider completely beyond our control. Even the things that Satan wants to do to discredit, to destroy our lives. God says, how about working your life? I'm going to use all of this to make you into a man of greatness. To make you into a woman of greatness. It's amazing, amazing truth. I put this quote up here, you guys. This is, this is the essence, I think, of Job. This is the essence of Romans 8. Everything is necessary that he sends. How many of you are struggling right now, honestly, because there's some things happening into your life that's coming into your life. You're going, God, what's the purpose of this? What's the use of this? This makes no sense. Why are you doing this to me? A lot of us. But how strong would you be if you knew God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is mighty, God is in control, God is absolutely in his infinite wisdom, allowing this to happen to create you, to man and woman of greatness. And secondly, nothing can be necessary that he withholds. God, I needed a job. I needed a relationship. I needed a promotion. God, I needed the healing to come through. God, I needed these things. And a God in his infinite wisdom says, Nothing that I withhold from you. Nothing that I withhold from you, child. Even in your wisdom, you know, in your wisdom, you think you absolutely need this to function, to live, to survive. God says, my infinite wisdom, you do not absolutely need it. Say, how could I trust him, Peter? How do I know that that's true? How do I know that God could take the evil suffering? How do I know? And I keep pointing to the cross. I keep pointing to the cross. <laughs> I keep pointing to the cross. How do I know? How can I be sure? How can I rest? How can I believe? Because of the cross. Because of what he did for me. Because of what he bled for me. Because of how he died for me. Because of how he sacrificed himself for me. Because of how he gave his all for me. This is how I know I could trust him. This is how I know God could take the worst of things in history and turn it for eternal good. This is how I know. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So let's go then. Let's go to the gospel. Verse 20. We're going to finish up here. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground in, what? Does that make any sense? For most of us, we're like, nah. He's writhing in pain. He is screaming out at God. He is in turmoil. And yet, at the same time, he is worshiping. And you go, how does that happen? We're going to talk about that as we end today. And then it said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I, I, I just read those words, and I'm like, if I could just say that once in my life and truly mean it. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin 
by charging God with wrongdoing. Two things real quick and we're done here. See the emotional realism? Some of you grew up in church and you were told by who the church pastor or whatever that if you shoot genuine emotion, anger, bitterness, and just, ah, in pain and suffering, because if you're a man or woman of faith, well, you kind of control that. I'm telling you right now, that was a load of really nonsense garbage. You see the emotional realism? God welcomes it. God welcomes our anger. God welcomes our frustrations. God welcomes our, I don't know why, God. God welcomes it. He says, come on, bring it to me. As I said last week, the only thing I feel like God can't handle is our silence. And we just go. God absolutely welcomes it. But notice the second thing, and this is the most powerful thing. In his emotional pain and loss, Job holds on to the theology of grace, which allows him to worship. He holds on to the gospel. What do I mean? Notice his words. He doesn't go, these things that you've taken away from me, these things that I worked so hard for, these things, my family, my job, my security, my money, my wealth, all these things, God, all these things I worked hard for, how dare you? What does he say? He goes, naked I came. Naked, I'm going to go. All of this is a loan from God. All of this is a gift of grace. Do you know why you need to hold on to theology of grace in the midst of suffering to get through? I don't even know I explained this well, but I'm going to try. The reason why you need to hold on to theology of grace when you're suffering is because If your approach to life is, I worked hard for this. This is my life. This is my identity. This is my security. My job, my money, my health, my wealth. If if you function from perspective, this is what gives meaning. This is what gives meaning. What suffering is going to do, if the foundations of your heart and the foundations of your life If the foundations of your heart and the foundations of your life is your health, is your marriage, is your relationship, is your job. If the foundations of your heart is built on those things, what suffering will do is it will take you away further and further and further from the very foundations of your heart. And it's going to result you in being angrier and angrier, bitter and bitter, and more... If the foundations of your heart are not these things, although it's nice to have these things, job, security, family, marriage, if the foundations of your heart are these things, but the foundations of your heart is Jesus and Jesus himself, what suffering will do, instead of taking you further and further away, it will take you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the only and true source of your joy. That's why you could suffer and worship at the same time. Our perspective, I'm going to wait until my suffering's over, because then I'm going to worship. I'm going to wait till things get better, because then I can worship. I'm going to wait till things turn around. Then I can worship. I'm going to wait till I have children. I'm going to wait till I have a job. I'm going to wait till I have... Then I can worship. But if you wait... Realize that when suffering comes, it's taking you away further and further and further from the only thing that truly will give you life. But if in the midst of suffering, you and I realize what this is doing is taking me away further and further from things that don't matter, but it's taking me deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the things that really do, which is Jesus himself, you will get stronger, you will get more courageous, you will be more humble, you will be that much greater. Is that good news? 
suffering and joy at the same time. Some of us are realizing, Peter, in the midst of the whole thing going through, the whole time I've been thinking, when is it going to be over? When are you going to deliver me out of this? When are you going to take me away, God? When is life going to turn out better? When am I going to have that thing? When is that going to work out for me? Do you realize that the whole time God is saying to you, deeper and deeper and deeper into me, into me, into me, into me. That's why Job in the midst of utter devastation, worships God and says, everything is a gift. How different would our lives be if this truth anchored us in the midst of our suffering? How strong would you be if you realize then maybe the most profound, loving thing God can do is to do that thing that will take you away from the false, dead idols and actually cut you deeper and deeper into the only thing that will satisfy you. How strong would you be? So, in conclusion... Let's all be like Job. I'm glad y'all laugh. Because <laughs> you know why? Some of you, if you're new to our church, you go, what's so funny about that? What's so funny? That seems like a practical application. That's perfectly right. We need to be like Job. I'll tell you what the problem that is, right? We're going to walk out here and go, I want to be like Job. And on Wednesday, we're going, I'm not like Job, you know? <laughs> or maybe for some of us, Monday morning at 10 o'clock, right? I like of course, this lesson application is not go be like Job. So number one, pray. So number two, read your Bibles. So number three, of course I don't do that. You, you and I know that's, that, that's not going to work. What is the answer? The answer is fix your eyes on the ultimate Job. Fix your eyes on the, what are you talking about, Peter? If you're new to the church, welcome to our church. Like, I see everything in the Bible as pointing to Jesus. Okay, that's how I, so I say ultimate Job. What do I mean? Job, in the book of Job, kind of looks and he sees a fuzzy figure in the distance. He sees this redeemer that's going to come. And so he has a certain level of understanding of the gospel. But he's on the other side of the cross, meaning the before. You and I, though, on the other side, the after the cross. And so we know who Job was pointing to. Do you know what you and I really need? Tyranny, do you know what we really need in our suffering? Here's what we need. See, Satan comes, says to Job, represent all of us, they don't love you. They just love you for the things you give them. Is there some truth to that? Yes? Let's be honest. There's some truth to that. But what did God do? God didn't go, oh, absolutely, those selfish, self-centered. God didn't do that. God goes, no, Satan. He's righteous. God didn't believe it. Then Satan goes, okay, here's what I'm going to try. I'm going to go to Adam and Eve, and I'm going to go, God doesn't love you. You think God loves you? God doesn't love you. Are you kidding me? He wants to use, he wants to exploit you. That's why he told you not to eat of the fruit of the tree, because he doesn't want you. 
be like God. He don't want that for you. So go, he doesn't love you. And when Satan came with that lie to us, that lie sank deep into our hearts, and we absolutely believed it. That's why when suffering and trials come, the first thing that you and I think automatically is, God, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you care about me? Because if you did, why would you? Immediately we go there. Because you and I say in our heads, oh, I believe that God loves me. I believe in the gospel. I believe. No, you don't. Because on Wednesday, when your coworker criticizes you, you're devastated and you're crushed. On Friday, when that guy or girl says, no, you're devastated and crushed. Tomorrow morning, you're going to go, and we're devastated and crushed. Because why? What the world says, what people say is on high definition plasma screen. And what God tells us is like a nine. 1985 cassette tape. Like, what? Is that coming through you? What? Somebody comes along and he cried out, Why? Why? Job got an answer from God. This ultimate Job didn't even get an answer from God. 2,000 years ago, the ultimate Job shows up. And check this out, you guys. He actually loved God just for himself, not to get anything out of it. He actually did the right thing, and he didn't just get nothing. He got death, execution out of it. 2,000 years later, the ultimate Job, and his name is Jesus, comes around, and he says, I'm going to die for you. Well, why, Jesus? Just because. What do you want from me? What do you want? I want your life. But you giving your life is not contingent upon whether I love you or not because I'm going to beat you to it and go to the cross and in your unrighteousness and sin and rebellion, I'm going to die for you. But I haven't done anything. I know you haven't. Welcome to the gospel. See, the only way that you're going to serve God for himself and not for anything he does for you, is when you realize that's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. He got nothing out of it. Absolutely nothing out of it. And he gave us all. See him dying for you. Pastor Peter, I've had a long-standing relationship with depression, huge depression, as if others close to me. You can bet I was amening through your entire sermon on Sunday. And she's like a good Asian, so she's probably amening in her, in her head. You know what I've learned about it, English? When someone feels utterly hopeless, at times separated from God, all they need to hear is that they're seen, that somebody sees them, to be met right where they are. They need friends to admit that they're not strong, that they cry too and they get angry. They also need to be reminded to cling to what is good, Romans 12, 9. To be even more open, depression has at times literally brought me to my knees, sobbing to the Lord at some of my lowest moments. I've said aloud, head in hands, Lord, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why is this life this hard? Why is it still hard? As if I could just pray away the suffering. 
And on my knees, I think of those strong visuals in the Passion of Christ film when Jesus, suffering bloody, prays for his torturers. Wow! At the core of the Christian conversation on suffering is, of course, our beautiful, perfect Savior, full of compassion and unimaginable love, a spiritually perfect man breaking the numbers game. Christianity, as that moment shows, is not a neatly wrapped belief. It's really difficult. We're called to take part in suffering. And listen to this. This is how she ends. And in that broken place, our qualifiers for happiness are broken and we're fulfilled only by Christ and his all-encompassing love. We're fulfilled by Christ and only his all-encompassing love. And I say, amen, and amen, and amen, and amen.